Well, it's great to have you back as we continue our series in the book of Ezra called Rebuild. And uh, if you want to get caught up to date, I'm going to give you a little bit of a refresher course on the book of Ezra. It's in the Old Testament, and uh, it's the story about God stirring in the heart of a king, a pagan king who was uh, over the exiles who, of, uh, of uh, the Jewish people who used to live in Jerusalem. And this, uh, in 586, Babylon came and totally destroyed and completely and finally destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They tore down its walls. They ripped apart the temple, took all the, the, the precious items in the temple back to them in Babylon. But Cyrus, who was a Persian king and took over Babylon after they were defeated, God stirred in his heart and said, go back to Jerusalem and build this temple to the one and only God. And so uh, that was where a man named Zerubbabel, uh, who was a Jewish leader, went back and rebuilt the temple. He went back to Jerusalem with about 40,000 um, exiles and they cleared off the foundation of the temple and they started to rebuild. But there was a problem. They had resistance. When they cleared off the the foundation and they put the altar up and they worshiped, there were shouts of 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 worship and and of joy to the Lord. And the people around them heard that. Have you ever been a part of the roar, roar of a crowd? I had a friend who gave me tickets to the first playoff or second playoff game of the Royals. And by the way, I'm a newly ordained Royals fan. <laughs> can see the colors. I didn't plan that, but someone told me. Yeah, God bless you this morning. I went to the second playoff game. It's my first game of the Royals this whole season. That shows you, yes, I need to repent. But I went. I went and I went on a Friday afternoon. They were playing the Astros. It was the second game. My wife came with me, and uh, sure enough, the first baseman gets up there, and I look on the screen. Oh, yeah. And I yell out at the top of my, my voice, get a hit, Hosmer. <laughs> and there was a hush around that crowd. <laughs> and my wife started laughing at me. And I went, what? What? It's Hosmer, isn't it? And guy in front of me goes, it's Hosmer. Okay. Welcome to the rookie royal fan here. So, but that was an exciting place to hear the roar of the crowd. And I've watched all their playoff games now. I've watched the World Series last Sunday night. We had actually a picture of Sway. And remember how we talked about Sway around Jerusalem? It was the people around them who resisted the work of God, who influenced them to stop building. And that's, that's what Sway does. It moves us away from God's mission for us and out of the game that God has called us to. And did you see that in the last World Series game? So you got, you got their pitcher. You got their pitcher who's, who's, uh, Harvey, Matt Harvey, and he's pitching eight, eight innings, and it's, he's just pitching incredible, and I'm going like, oh no, they're gonna lose this one. And all of a sudden, at the bottom of the eighth, the, the, um, the, the Mets are up, and you start hearing, Harvey, 
Harvey, Harvey, and the crowd is going wild. Keep Harvey in. You see in the dugout, the, the camera moves. You're right into the mix of this tension. And all of a sudden, the, the, um, Terry Collins is going up to him and says, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remove you. And I got a, I got a reliever that's gonna come. And he goes, No way. I mean, you can read it in his lips. Everybody, what? I'm not going out, you know? And, you know, Collins kind of goes, Okay, go back in. And he does one of these, but sway, sway is having its full effect. And what does he do? He walks the first guy, sway, keep him in. Next guy, look out. They, they, they rally and they win the game. And, and everyone's going, wow, did you see sway last week in the World Series? Sway has a huge effect on us. For us, Royals fans, it worked out for our good, right? For others, it's devastating. I wish I would have. I mean, so many regrets when sway hits our lives. And so it was with the people of God in Jerusalem. Swayed to the sidelines when God had called them into the game. And as a result, as a result, God uses Haggai, he uses Zechariah, and then he uses Ezra. And they come back and he brings Haggai and Zechariah says, get back in the game. I mean, 15 years the, the building had stopped. For 15 years. And those two prophets well up the people. Now's the time to build. Stop building your own homes. And build the house of God. And they get back in the game. And they finish it. In 515 BC. The house of the Lord is finished. And you would think. Oh this is great. Revivals hit the land. But it didn't. And it shows us a lot of things. About the reality of what's the big issue with us. Here it is. We can think when things aren't right, we can think if we move away like they did, they moved from Babylon back into God's land and think if we move away, everything's going to be better. The problem with moving is you still have you. And that's a profound learning that I've had in my own life. I can blame when I'm in an environment. If I just wasn't working for this person, if this wasn't happening, if, if I just got out of this place, everything would be better. And the reality is, is all those reactions I bring with me. I can move. I can walk out of a relationship. I can walk out of employment. I can walk out of a ministry. But ultimately, I still have me. And I'm broken. So why don't we just build something? I mean, after all, buildings make our wildest dreams come true. If we build it, they will come, right? And so they rebuilt the temple. And God has never been just focused on a building. And neither should we, right? We think if we just build a building, everyone will come. Everyone will be choiceable. And we live the Pedro Christianity where our wildest dreams will come true. But that's not true. Because buildings don't solve the issue with us. So then let's just get into religious practices. And that's what they did. The, the Passover started being celebrated at the temple. They had all their festivals going. You think with all the religious practices, everything would be great. Nothing would be missing. But it was missing what they were doing. See, at the heart of the issue with Israel and the heart of the issue with us is the internal resistance of our hearts. It's the heart. The heart is the heart of the issue. And God has always targeted the heart. It's the most important part of you. It's your heart. And God is about healing the heart. He's about bringing new life into heart. He's about, he's about uh, taking a heart of stone and replacing it to be a heart of flesh. That's the message of the whole Bible of God doing whatever it takes with our hearts to bring us back so that we could have a heart after him. And that's the story of the book of Ezra. 
What does Jeremiah say about the heart? Uh, It's actually a haunting picture of the heart that we all have to come into contact with. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to get every man according to his ways, according to the work of his deeds. Look at that. The diagnostic picture of the heart, it's deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. I want to give you four observations of the heart, and then I want to talk to you about how God rebuilds a heart, because that's ultimately the message of Ezra. Number one, first observation, the heart is insecure. Last week, we looked at how Sway moved the people from being in the mission rebuilding to then stopping the rebuilding effort and staying on the sidelines. And and it was their hearts, right? In Ezra 4, 4, it details that account. It says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. The heart is insecure. We long for peace. We long for security in our hearts. It's something that draws us to seek after a higher purpose, a greater meaning than just ourselves. But what do we find when we look at the heart? The heart has been bullied. The heart has been hurt. The heart is wounded. The heart is fearful. It's discouraged. It's easily distracted. It's in despair. That's the heart. And insecure, wounded, anxious, impatient hearts lead us to places none of us want to be. It's because the heart is insecure. It's also insincere. The heart is insincere. Look what Isaiah chapter 29 says about the heart. It says, These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And yet, With an insecure and an insincere heart, we long for authenticity. And yet we discover when we look within us an inauthentic attitude or a motivation that if revealed would level the best of us. Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 15. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. And so we have an insincere heart. One that says things it ultimately doesn't mean. Concerned with uh, how things sound and what people think about us, uh, whether or not it's true or not, what we say. So we make statements like this when we're invited to something. Hey, sounds great. I'll get back to you later. And ultimately, what we mean is I'll text you tomorrow because I don't have the guts to tell you no today. Or we make statements like no offense, but and what we really mean to say is going to be very offensive. But you can't get upset because I said no offense, right? And we do that. We do that. Or we make a statement that we see in the expression that that it it went over the line, it crossed the line, and all of a sudden we go, was that wrong? Because if it was wrong, I would have never said it. It's an insincere heart. But the heart is also stubborn. The heart seeks its own way. The heart values independence. I want to live my life the way I want to live it on my terms. Zechariah saw that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 7 verse 11. Read this with me. It says, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. Can you see it? Do you have a three-year-old at home? That stubborn shoulder that turns them around from listening to the truth. Those of you who have a three-year-old, I see it in your faces. Yes. But 
and they stopped their ears. Now, that's a little bit more old. That's seven and eight-year-olds. We stop listening to mom and dad like this. They stopped their ears that they may not hear. Look at verse 12. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Look at the diagnosis of the, of the heart in Zechariah. They refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder. They stopped their ears. They made their hearts diamond hard. Jesus quoted Isaiah in Matthew 13, 16. He says, for this people's heart have grown dull and their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. See, it's always been the heart of God is he wants to heal us when our hearts turn to him. What does he say to his disciples after he says this? Blessed are you because you have eyes and they see and ears and they have heard. The heart is also easily deceived. The heart is always seeking, seeking truth, seeking facts, but it's deceitful as it says in Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a great question because there's this thought and it's a false thought in our minds that I can understand my heart. I mean, all the top 40 songs say, just listen to your heart, go with it. And the reality is no, 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 you don't understand. You really don't understand your heart. Oh, but Joe, if I can't understand my heart, I at least know other people's hearts. Sorry, that doesn't work either. You can't judge someone else's motive. You can't look into hearts from political candidates to Hollywood actors to leaders to neighbors to friends to spouses or your own children. You don't see into their hearts. You can't, but God can. And when a heart is insecure, when it's insincere, when it's stubborn, when it's deceived, look out. We tend to be driven by, by what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it looks like. And we start writing this story in our lives. When the heart is wounded, when it's broken, it can look at it, it can make all the, all the assumptions based on what you think the other person means by what they said. And the story always sounds like this. They're the villain. I'm the victim. And it, and it rationalizes how we think about them, how we talk about them, how we act about them. And so what we had in Jerusalem is you had a group of people who came back and they helped build this temple. And now they started to be called into the worship of this one and only God. And all of a sudden you started realizing, wait a minute, they moved away. That solved the issue, right? No, moving, they still had them. Well, they built the temple. I mean, building something that ought to build a greater heart. No, building is a building. It's just a building. And what about these religious practices? If they just did these things, they would know the issue came down to their hearts. The same people who returned, the same people who were part of a miracle of God became people who were interested in other gods in that area. And they started marrying people who worshipped other gods. And those those relationships brought them to turn from their God to worship all the other gods. Remember when I talked about last week in Megiddo, when I looked at that that city, that ancient city of 28 layers of civilization. This was in the northern tribes of of Israel. And and that circular formation, there was an altar to all the other gods of Megiddo. And the people of God 
And the people of the land took their children and they sacrificed them on that altar. When they unearthed this area, there were hundreds, if not thousands of bone fragments of infants. And God said, no, my people will not sacrifice their children on this altar. My people will worship me in this place that I provided for them. They will look to my work for them. They won't try to work through the other gods. Come back to me, Israel. Come back to my heart. I brought you back to this place to worship me. And the people were worshiping other gods. And that's why we have Ezra. Ezra kind of exhausts the picture of can we move away from places and it move our hearts? No. Can we build a place and have it rebuild our heart? No. Can we just do a bunch of stuff and have it have a heart that's that 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 we can work our way back to God? And the answer is no, you can't. And it takes seven chapters in the book of Ezra to get to the end of this picture that it's really our hearts. And I think God does that for a purpose. For seven chapters, we hear of a guy named Zerubbabel. Why isn't the book named Zerubbabel? Well, too many syllables, right? No, no. It's brought to Ezra because Ezra came for that reason. Ezra returned to rebuild people's hearts around God. That's why I came to rebuild hearts for God. Look at what it says of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, open up there with me. Ezra 7, verse 6. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Look at that. And then if you just move your eyes down to verse 10 of chapter 7, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What do we know about Ezra? Well, we're introduced as a man who did three things. Look at this. He set his heart to study God's word and then not just to know God's word, but to do it, to live a life in response to God's word. And then as he did that, he taught others to do the same. This is kind of an Old Testament picture of what discipleship is all about. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is just should kind of detail your life. You set your heart on God's word. You follow God in his word and you teach others to do the same. It's a great Old Testament picture of New Testament discipleship. And this should be said of every Christ follower's life. Because we're all rebuilding our hearts for God. What does this look like? Well, I found that there's three practices that Ezra, as he set his heart to study, to follow, and to teach others to do the same, there's three things that he models. And they're detailed in Ezra's chapter 9 and 10. And I want to have you turn there with me. The first one is repentance. Repentance gets a bad rap in our world because uh, it has to do with us coming to terms with our sin and us turning from our sins to follow Jesus. But repentance is a very common word in the scriptures. It's a very common word in a follower of Christ. Repentance realizes your broken heart and it turns to trust in the only one who can heal it. Our tendency with our sin is to cover and blame God's solution, vulnerability, openness, confession, repentance. Look at with me in uh, Ezra chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. Look at to the repentant heart of Ezra for the people. 
He says this, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering. And to utter shame as it is today. Boy, uh, repentance, one of the gifts of repentance is to, for you to actually see the reality of where you're at. That's a blessing. Because a deceived heart doesn't know reality. And if you're someone who's uh, been around someone who's deceived, who can, who's blind to their issues, you see them very, very clearly. And the day that they discover their insecurities, they discover what they're doing, how they're responding, how they're acting. That's a good day, right? That's a good day. But why do people resist the truth about themselves? Because it's the truth about themselves. And it's not something we like to go, hey, I'm a sinner, everyone. Hey, good morning. I'm a sinner. I got these issues. I got these brokenness. We don't like to talk about those. We like to cover it. And some of us cover it with our careers. And so we get to the highest rung of the ladder and we try to cover the fact that we've got issues and brokenness in our lives. Or we blame. If you had a family like mine, if you had a parent like mine, you'd act the same way. That's why I have addiction. That's why I do this. That's why I can't trust people. I have trust issues. And we blame and we cover. And what does God call us to? Be open. Be vulnerable. Don't relationships, every relationship with God, with everyone, don't they grow when you're more open, when trusting and vulnerable with your heart than you are to cover and to blame? For many of us, that's the issue. And can I just be real open? I used to be just kind of, I used to be kind of frightened with that word repentance in my walk with Christ. I saw it as dreadful. But you know what? As I've walked with Jesus and I've seen how he's responded when I've repented for my sin, it's become delight to me. Amen. And you know what that can be for you, too? It's, it's, it's coming down to, God, I am a sinner. I have done my own way. I've said this. It's because my heart is insecure. I just confess that to you. And I've been doing this. And I, I don't want to be that anymore. I turn from that to trust you. That's repentance. And it's become grace to me. It's grace. It's a blessing from God that you would actually know what's going on with you, that you would have eyes to see what God already sees. He de- it never comes as a surprise to God. He's not like, whoa, man, that's in you. No, he sees it. He sees it. And he doesn't rub our face and he doesn't go, I've been knowing that since you've been 12, man. No, he heals the heart when we're repentant. Repentance was that picture. But it wasn't just repentance. We're not just called into a vacuum of admitting your sin and turning from it. We're called into depending. And that's the second thing. Dependence. Right after those words of repentance, look at these words of dependence. It says this. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us some reviving. Doesn't that sound Southern Baptist right there? Grant us some reviving in our slavery. Look at how he develops it more. For we are slaves. 
Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving. There's that word again. I got to say it with that southern drawl. To let, set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, to give us a protection in Judea and Jerusalem. That's dependence. You see, our, our tendency, and we have seen this tendency in the book of Ezra, and we see it in ourselves. Our tendency when it comes to turning away from our broken hearts, we try harder. That's our tendency. Just do it. Many of you came from religious backgrounds where you just had to try harder. Go to church on Sunday. Be a good person. And at the end of the day, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. And God will say, all right, come on in. That's based on the myth that you can be good enough to earn God's favor. And what do we see here? It's God's steadfast love. He says, we were slaves. We were rebellious. Our only hope is you. It's only hope out of our only salvation is you. You are our protection. You are our strength. You are the one who rebuilt our hearts and and grant us. You grant you change our hearts from stone to flesh. Only God can do that in our lives. We got to come back to where we depend on him with our hearts. And then there's obedience. Repentance, dependence, and obedience. Look at what he calls. Now, again, in Ezra chapter 10, if you turn the page over to Ezra chapter 10, we we get this picture of them leaving the people who caused them to walk away from God to commit themselves fully to a relationship with God and a worship of God alone. It says, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all of Israel take an oath that they would do as they had as they had said. So they took the oath. Now, they had gotten into relationships with with wives who had worshipped the other gods. And it wasn't just she has her religion, you have have yours. They were actually led astray to worship the other gods. And so they were called to either worship God alone or walk away from God. And this begs the question, doesn't it, in contemporary Christianity? If your spouse doesn't believe like you, Does that give you a right to divorce them? And the answer in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is no, it doesn't. You're called to love that spouse, whether or not they believe like you, because you represent the gospel. You represent the good news of Jesus in that relationship. So never separate from that. But here, this was much different practices. Remember, those practices were ultimately sacrificing your children on that altar, And so they were called to end those relationships. But in the New Testament, we're called to keep those relationships that the gospel would move. And you would be light in that relationship. But the larger picture for us is, are we willing to obey? When we step away from sin, are we are we going to obey whatever that looks like in a relationship with God? The answer is, yeah, we're called to do that. That's how our hearts grow in a love for God. 
You know, so many times we go, hey, be true to yourself. Follow your heart. But what if being true to yourself is being messed up? <laughs> many of us are messed up. I mean, if I could be so honest, my I'm messed up. I am. The more I look at my heart, the more I realize I need Jesus. And and as I look around me, it's easy for me to compare my life with you, but I'm, God never compares me with you. He compares me with Jesus. And I need the heart of Jesus. Repentance, dependence, obedience. What do you see when you look at your heart? We're called to do that daily. And to repent and to turn. To depend and to obey. Let me tell you what this looked like in my life this week. As I was just thinking through, uh, what does God see when he sees my heart? I just have to look back on the wake of my relationships. And here's some words that came to mind. I'm not proud of them, but I do want to share them with you. Um, I'm impatient. I'm easily angered. And I'm not at rest. And I can blame them for a whole bunch of reasons. We all do. We find uh, lots of reasons to excuse our behavior. And, um, and so when I have a 15-year-old who's learning how to drive and um, we're coming to a roundabout and he's not really thinking about the roundabout, I came undone. <laughs> I said things that I had to look in the mirror after and go, just pastors don't say words like that. And I started going, well, it's just what happens. I mean, he's got to learn. I got to speak louder. I got to make it happen. He's got to know that he don't, don't, sometimes you don't get strike two in a car. But I can rationalize it. What does he need? Why did that just show me out of the overflow of the heart? The mouth speaks. And I had to come to term with that. Well, there's pressure in ministry. Any guy with pressure in ministry would do that. Uh, there's crisis all the time in a congregation our size. We're building. I mean, all that kind of pressure. Uh, normal guy does that. You're not called to be normal, Hishma. You're called to be godly. And so I can make excuses. But ultimately, it comes down to my heart. And my heart, I had to realize, my heart is too dependent on me. My heart is looking within for answers when I need to look up for the provision that's already been done for me. My heart needs time with Jesus each day to confess it, to confess it's insecure, to confess it's insincere, to confess it's stubborn, to confess it might be deceived. And I need Ezra's in my life to call me back. And so do you. Because our heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. We need Ezra's. We need wise people in our lives who have set their heart on God and his word and who are willing to call us into it also. Your friends, folks, real friends are not just the ones who say what you want to hear. Real friends are those who love you enough to see your heart and to call you to a heart for God. We all need friends like that who will call us to repent, who will call us to depend, who will call us to obey. We need those friends. So I just want to close our time right now with an opportunity for you to trust God with your heart. 
I just want to take a moment of quietness. And my goodness, in our week, we have so few moments like this. Let's take a moment of quietness before the Lord right now. And really focus. What does God see when he sees your heart? Confess it to him. Turn from it. And trust him to rebuild your heart. Would you just do that in a quietness? Open up your heart. Be vulnerable and open. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of confession and repentance. Holy Spirit, move in us. Find freedom with an attitude, an action, a thought that's in the way of your work in our lives. That affects people around us because of our hearts. And we confess it to you and we turn from it. We don't want that anymore. I don't want to be that man anymore. And so we depend on you. We turn from trying to do what you have already done for us and that we need to trust. And Lord, whatever direction, whether it's in word or action or an attitude, let us take on the heart of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Rebuild our hearts that they might overflow in praise, in thanksgiving, in joy, in obedience to you. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.